Amen. Well, I have no idea how we're going to, to get to a higher point than that Super Bowl chant. That was fantastic. We'll try. You know, most people don't have any clue how they're going to die, but I think that I happen to be one of those people that just might have an idea of how I'm going to die, if I'm not careful, that is. Because, and if you know me, you already know this, but I have this really weird, tiny little, small, fatal flaw of mine, and it's that I have some weird confidence that if I were to go up to a bear out in the wild, a few of you are like, yeah, I've heard this before. <laughs> like, if I were to go up to a wild bear, I could pet that bear and be totally fine. I don't know what it is about it. It's just like, the bear seems so cute and cuddly, and I don't know why it would be so cute and cuddly if it didn't intend for me to come up and pet it. I, I look at myself and I'm like, I don't think that I pose that much threat to a bear. I don't know that the bear's looking at me and going, yeah, that guy is going to beat me up in a fight. So I just, I just don't think that the bear's that intimidated by me. Uh, to, to prove this to you, I've got a picture. This is me on a hike this past summer. Um, some friends and I were like 30 feet from a, a mama bear and her cub. You see the, the fear in my eyes. Uh, <laughs> I'm terrified that that bear's going to turn around and, and launch at me. I'm, my mom is mortified right now. Um, I don't know what it is. I just, I, I'm so convinced that the bear just wants to be friends with me. Now, thankfully, I've got a lot of friends, a lot of you guys in here, who are faithful to constantly remind me just how stupid that is. <laughs> you guys are so faithful to constantly remind me, Matthew, please don't do that. That is not going to end well. Why? Because the second that I get any more comfortable thinking that I can go up to that bear in the wild and pet him, I will be swiftly eradicated from the face of the planet. <laughs> so hypothetically speaking, let's, let's say that one day you guys open up an obituary and you see a picture of me in there and it says, Matthew Goldstein, pet a bear. Not tried to pet a bear, pet a bear, that's why I'm in the obituary. You're probably not going to feel that bad for me, right? No, you're going to look at it and be like, this is exactly what he had coming to him. This is exactly what you would expect because bears do exactly what bears do. And so you'd say, that's completely on me for doing such a dumb thing. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're happy to, to sit back and say, I would never do something like that. I would never be so foolish as to think I could go pet a bear in the wild and be fine. I have bad news for you. And it's that I think you tend to do exactly the same thing. You tend to do exactly the same thing. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But first, we've got to open up the word for this morning and, and see what Jesus has for us in this passage. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. So we're in one of the concluding passages on the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying for the last handful of months. It'll be on the screen. Read it now. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered in thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your word. Pray that as we open it and study it this morning, that you would speak through me and that we would be a people who grow in the knowledge and joy of you that is available to us. Amen. What's the context here? What's going on? Well, if you look a couple of verses up at the passage that Pastor Sam preached for us last Sunday, Jesus has been talking about how there's two roads in life, and every single person in the world is on one of these two roads. So on the one side, you've got the narrow road. This is the way of following Jesus, the way that leads to eternal life. And then you've got every other person in the world, every other way, every other teacher, every other anything you can imagine that's on the narrow road, and that, or that's on the wide road. And the wide road, they think that it leads to eternal life. All those other people, they think that they're headed towards life. But in reality, Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, that is the road that will lead to death. The wide road, it's the, the easy road, right? It's the, uh, the path of least resistance. It's the path that's going to require the least amount of sacrifice and, and standing out on your part that you could do. And, and on the other side, the narrow road is the hard road, right? Jesus continually throughout his preaching makes known to us just how hard it's going to be to follow him. It's a road that we, we travel on freely by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus, but it's a road that's still costly for us to travel on. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that we're going to have to take up our crosses to follow him, that we're going to have to die to ourselves daily and deny ourselves in order to follow him. This is the kind of language of the narrow road. It's going to be hard. And as if that's not hard enough as is, Jesus then continues here in this passage by telling us, hey, not only is the wide road going to look so much more enticing, but there's actually going to be wide road people who appear to be on the narrow road and who are going to deceive you and seek to pull you away from the narrow road and onto the wide road. These people are false prophets, false teachers, described as wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like you. They look like sheep, but inwardly are described as ravenous wolves. And so Jesus tells us that we are to beware these people because they're dangerous it's pretty intimidating, right? This seems like a, a pretty big deal for us to have to navigate. But Jesus, he wastes no time in giving us the good news, and it is that we're not hopeless because immediately after telling us that we need to beware them because they exist and they're ravenous, he tells us exactly how to, write, how to recognize them, how to find who they are, and then how to deal with it. So in order to figure out how to identify who these false prophets are, we first need to make sure that we have a good understanding of who they are. Who are the, the false prophets that Jesus is talking about? Well, in one sense, he could be talking about, very broadly, anyone who teaches what is false. Anyone who denies the narrow road way of life. So this, this encompasses truly anybody on the wide road that is teaching contrary to the narrow road way. But Jesus, he seems to be talking about a group a little more specific than just anybody and everybody that opposes him. 
He seems to be talking about a group who actually look like the sheep. He doesn't say all wolves. He says wolves who appear to be in sheep's clothing. When we think about the context of the Sermon on the Mount, throughout the last few months, what we've seen is that Jesus is constantly addressing the fact that people have this view of what they think righteousness looks like. For instance, you take the the scribes and the Pharisees, and you see these people who, by all accounts, they seem to be really righteous. They seem to be solid. And throughout this whole sermon, Jesus is constantly saying, that is not what true righteousness is. This is what true righteousness is. He gives us the Beatitudes. He gives us the characteristics of the kingdom. And so he's constantly talking about a group of people who preach a righteousness that is different from the narrow road righteousness. So basically, these people are those who seem to be good and seem to be Jesus' people, but actually aren't. Not just anyone who publicly is like, I hate God but specifically people who seem to be like they are sheep, but actually aren't. And this is what these people are like. So I, uh, I had a pastor in college, the church that I interned at, and he had this one, one bad habit. Um, great guy, love him. But he had this one thing that he would do, and it was that he would leave his coffee mugs out after he would finish them, and he would just not clean them. And not for like one or two days, like these, these coffee mugs were having their own like 40 days in the wilderness kind of experience out on his windowsill. And over time, they would grow these like ecosystems. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. I, I went through a lot of pains to find this picture. <laughs> it was so disgusting. <laughs> and this was like a regular thing. But the thing is, From the outside of the cup, if I was just looking at the sides, looks clean to me. If you would ask me, Matthew, is this cup clean? And I couldn't see in, I'd say, yeah, it looks pretty clean. I drink out of it, like, looks like a normal cup. The whole time on the inside, there's like a a magic school bus informational field trip on bacteria. (laughs) And I'd have no idea because I was only looking at the outside of the cup. And this is exactly what these false teachers are like they're clean on the outside. They look religious, really religious. They might even look more religious than you on the outside. But on the inside, they're what Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. They're really pretty and done up. On the outside, they look great. But when you open it up on the inside, it's just bones in there. On the outside, these people might do all the same things that we're called to do. Right? These people read their Bibles. They probably haven't missed a day on their Bible in a year plan yet. They're at church every Sunday, probably every Wednesday, too. They give generously. They go on mission trips. Maybe they even, like, fast, do some stuff like that. But on the outside, they are wide-road people, wolves in sheep's clothing. They, They might look like narrow road, eternal life kinds of people by that outward picture, but on the inside, they look what we saw in the cup full of of death and and bacteria and just disgustingness. It's not clean. So that's who these people are. But the question becomes, how do we identify them? How are we supposed to actually recognize who's who if we're told that, hey, these people exist and they're here and they do a lot of the same things that we do in our communities? And Jesus tells us here, both in verse 16 and verse 20, the way that we're to recognize these people is by their fruit. 
He asks the question, he says, do you get grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the obvious answer right, is no. You get grapes from grapevines and figs from fig trees. I'm not like a gardener, but I know that much. And so the implication is, if somebody's not producing grapes, and you're looking closely and looking after enough time, you're going to be able to sit back and say, I don't think this person is a grapevine. It's as simple as that. Jesus is saying that we can only fake it for so long. Eventually, the truth will be shown because you can only produce what is according to your own nature. If you're a thorn bush, you're never going to produce grapes. And then he clarifies. He says, healthy trees, they produce good fruit. And diseased trees, they produce bad fruit. And then he says the negative statement of that just to make sure we really get the picture. But when he says good and bad here, we need to clarify what he means because it could sound like, if you're imagining like an apple tree, that the good fruit is like a nice, ripe, honey crisp apple. And if you know, you know, because that's the best apple by far. And then in the other hand, you've got this like tiny, mushy, brown, rotten apple, and you can sit them each in your hand and know clearly which one's which. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying both of them look good on the outside. These people are doing all of the things that we would expect them to do, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And yet inside of one fruit is a good apple, and inside the other, it's described as being bitter and poisonous. The word even means worthless, good for nothing. So somehow there's something happening on the inside of the fruit that Jesus tells us we should be able to recognize, not just the outside, but somehow the quality of the fruit is how we're going to identify them. But practically speaking, right, what does this actually mean? Because none of us are like making apples. So how does, how does this passage apply practically? Let me give you two ways that you can identify this bad fruit within false teachers. And number one, the question is, what do they teach? False prophets, they, wolves in sheep's clothing, they tend to, to fall towards one of two extremes on this spectrum. Remember, their teaching isn't blatantly against God. They're not walking up to a pulpit and saying, God doesn't exist. They seem like sheep. And so their teaching, while it is false and destructive and anti-gospel, Christians might still be susceptible to fall to it if we're not careful of what they're doing. So here's the two sides of teaching that they fall to. On one side, you have legalism, and on the other side, antinomianism. So legalism, right, this is when we try to, to make it onto the narrow road and, and continue on the narrow road by our own merits. We think that by obeying God, by doing all the right things, following all the right rules, we will be able to be narrow road people. But in reality, this is to trust in ourselves and to pridefully believe that we can save our own souls. And it's also to pridefully ignore the whole inside of the cup. That would be like my pastor looking at his coffee mug and being like, no, I'm, I'm a narrow road person, just don't look at the inside. Because in reality, we have no ability on our own to cleanse the inside of the cup. That is something that only comes from the Holy Spirit. So on the one side, you've got this legalism. And let me clarify something. Legalism and obedience are not the same thing. Sometimes, and we mean well when we do this, we can see a brother or sister in Christ 
who is putting their blood and their sweat and their tears into their discipleship to Jesus. We see them fighting for it, killing sin, seeking to grow, and we see it and we come alongside of them and put our arms around them and we say, hey, brother, that's legalism. Worry about all that. Guys, that's, that's not legalism. That's Christianity. Legalism is when we think that by doing certain things, we can earn our salvation. Christianity, following Jesus, means that because he has empowered us with his spirit and because he has freely bestowed his grace onto us, now we work at our discipleship. Legalism and obedience are not the same thing. Dallas Willard, he, he has this great quote where he says that grace isn't opposed to effort. Those two things go together. What grace is opposed to is earning. Grace wants you to try. Grace just doesn't want you to try in order to get it. The reason why we typically fall to that side, why we might put our arms around somebody and say something like that, is because of the other extreme, which is something called antinomianism. Big word for early in the morning. It just means anti-law. So these are the people who would say, you're saved. You're good. Don't you know what Jesus has already done for you? You don't need to worry about all that following Jesus stuff. You don't need to worry about all the obedience and all the rules. You've, you've got your ticket to heaven. You'll be fine. And so we excuse a lack of growth and sanctification because we just say, Jesus has already done what I need him to do, and so I'm good. I've heard it described that, that antinomianism is like wanting to return home to the father's house but still live like a prodigal. We can't have it both ways. So if somebody's teaching you either that you can earn your way to heaven or that you can do the work on your own to cleanse yourself, to make yourself holy, to make yourself righteous, if somebody's saying that, if somebody's teaching you that you don't need to worry that much about obeying Jesus and taking that seriously, beware. Beware. That is anti-gospel teaching not faithful to the gospel. But the issue might be that this person's teaching might be solid. When we think about false teachers, false prophets, if they teach something like what we just talked about, we can automatically say, that is not good teaching. But what if they have good teaching? What if their doctrine doesn't seem to have any holes in it? Well, this is where the second point comes in. And this is when we ask, what's their character? What's their character? Thistles don't produce figs, and thorn bushes don't produce grapes. They might appear to for a time. You might be able to fake it. You might be able to staple some fruit on, but eventually the truth will become known. You can't produce the fruit of the Spirit by yourself, and you can only fake it for so long. The problem is we tend to look at the, these outward fruits, and we have the wrong fruits that we look at. When we are evaluating false teachers or, or just teachers in general, we tend to look at things like how well they preach, how big their following is, how many New York Times bestsellers they've written or whatever else, and we look at those things and say, surely they're solid. Look at all their success. Look at all their accolades. Guys, in Scripture, I do not see that as the marking of what shows somebody who is producing godly fruit. Because in Scripture, what we're told is that the marker is character, not accolades. 
It's love and joy and peace and patience and all of those fruits that come from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. And we can't fake those forever. Because in time, people will always show us what their true colors are. We have to be willing to look beyond the outward stuff. We have to train ourselves to value the correct things and look towards proper character and who people are more than whether or not they can preach well or whatever else it may be. Let me say here, this is why it is incredibly, incredibly important that we are primarily spiritually led and fed by leaders within our own local church community. I am in no way saying that reading Christian books or watching a sermon online is bad. It's a blessing that we have them. But if the primary way that you're being fed and being taught how to follow Jesus is by people who you don't know and don't know you, that's dangerous. Because you don't know them and they don't know you. I'm not calling you to be paranoid about every preacher that you watch online, but what I'm saying is it's a lot easier to fake godliness or to appear godly for a 40-minute clip on your phone than it is to live in flesh-and-blood community alongside of each other and fake it there. The church community is built around being able to uh, weed this stuff out. So I think about West Park, and I'm blessed by the process that we have for, for eldership and for leadership in the church. So much has to go into that that it would be so hard for this to happen. We think about somebody who's a, a false teacher that just gets up on a platform on YouTube and, and teaches. That wouldn't be able to happen here. And that is the blessing of the local church. So we identify bad fruit by two things. We look at their teaching and we see if it aligns with scripture or not. And then we look to character more than we look to performance and accomplishments to see whether or not the fruit is actually good on the inside. And this is the kind of heady section of things, but let me tell you a story about how this actually plays out. And this will be a pretty familiar story for you guys. You guys know about Little Red Riding Hood, right? So there's a little girl and her mom gives her a meal to go take to her grandma out in the woods because she's sick. And she tells her, hey, stay on this path. Don't depart from it. Don't go off wandering around into the woods. Stay on this path. Go straight to grandma's house. She's like, all right, cool. Sounds like a plan. And she sets out. While she's there, a wolf comes to her, not out in the middle of the woods, on the path that she's on. Wolf comes to her. The story says that Little Red Riding Hood did not know what a wicked creature he was and was not at all afraid of him. So the wolf, he starts chatting with her and things seem innocent enough. But then the wolf decides that if he plays his cards right, he can eat both Little Red Riding Hood and the grandma. And so he convinces her, he tells her to, to go off the path and pick some nice flowers because won't that be such a nice little thing to go with the meal for her grandma? And Little Red Riding Hood's like, yeah, that, that does sound nice. So she gets distracted and wanders off into the woods. Well, while she's off doing that, the wolf hightails it to the grandma's house and eats her. I have no idea why he did this next part. I don't feel like it was necessary. He could have just stayed in the house. Little Red Riding Hood was coming there anyway. But he puts on all the grandma's clothes and then gets in her bed to wait for Little Red Riding Hood to come in. And she does. She walks in and she, she does notice that the grandma looks strange, but... As I was reading the story, I'm wondering, what could this, this poor woman have looked like that her, grand, uh, that her granddaughter in any way, in the slightest, would entertain the possibility that that was 
her own flesh and blood grandmother and not a wild animal? I don't know. That, that just haunted me while I was reading this. But she does think something's up. But she says, Grandma, what big ears you have. Well, says, the, the better to, to hear you with. She says, what big eyes you have, the better to see you with. What large hands you have. Wolf says, what, what better to hug you with. And then she says, Grandma, what a, what a terrible big mouth you have. And the wolf jumps up, says, the better to eat you with, and swallows her whole. And then that's it. He, he climbs back into bed, takes a nice nap from his meal, and the story ends. The wolf won. He tricked her. He looked human. He looked trustworthy. He got her to depart from the path that she was on. And it killed her. It wasn't like, it wasn't like he said, hey, Little Red Riding Hood, you should go off into the woods. Give me about 20 minutes because I'm going to go eat your grandma. And then when you're finished, come my way and then I'm going to eat you too. And she's like, okay, cool. Sounds like a plan. No. She was tricked because it was subtle. It was about the flowers. C.S. Lewis, he has this great quote about how the safest and best road to hell is one that you gradually travel on that has no sudden turns, no, no signposts, no road signs so that you have any clue where you're headed. It's just one little step after another until you end up in hell in this, this passage as we see a tree cut down into the fire. And this is us, guys. This is, this is the story of humanity. We're, we're just a bunch of little red riding hoods. And on our own, this is exactly how our story would end. We would be lured away from the narrow road, unable to make it to eternity. We would be devoured by wolves. If you notice, we're, we're sheep and wolves are wolves. And even if you're aware that a wolf wants to come devour you, you're a sheep. The wolf is going to get you if the wolf wants to get you. He's more powerful than you. He's more vicious than you. More cunning and sly. On our own, we have no hope. But there's something interesting about this fairy tale, and it's that around 50 to 100 years after this original version was published, the Brothers Grimm came along and added an epilogue. You might be familiar with it. In the epilogue, there was actually a hunter, the local hunter that happened to be out in the woods nearby, and he walks by and he hears the grandma snoring, the wolf snoring, and thinks, man, grandma's in there. I should go check in if she needs anything. Again, what could this woman have possibly snored like that the man thought that that was human in there and not, again, a wild animal, but it's a fairy tale. I'm not that mad about it. And the hunter comes in and he assesses the situation he realizes what's happened, and he cuts open the wolf, frees the grandma and Little Red Riding Hood, and it seems to be a happily ever after. They defeat the wolf, Little Red Riding Hood. She thinks to herself, it says, now as long as I live, I shouldn't depart from the path as my mom told me. She's learned her lesson. But then there's like a second ending to this ending. Eventually history, it threatens to repeat itself, and Little Red Riding Hood is again sometime later in life uh, being asked by her mom to go bring a meal to the grandma out in the woods. And so she does it, and while she's on the path, she's not going to depart from it this time. But while she's on there, a wolf comes to her again. 
This time she knows how dangerous they are, so she knows to, to beware the wolf. And this time, they're able to defeat it. The wolf follows her to the house, but she and her grandma are aware of the situation. They take the proper precautions. They kill the wolf. And now it actually is a happily ever after. The last line of the story, it says, Little Red Riding Hood, she went joyously home, and no one ever did anything to harm her again. The hope of the gospel is that there's a second ending to the story. It's that it doesn't just end with them being devoured and the wolf winning. I said a minute ago that on our own, we're sheep, and we have no hope of being able to survive a wolf attack. That is, unless we have a shepherd who can protect us. Unless we have a shepherd who can come and keep the wolves away. In John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said that this is exactly who he is. He says that he is the good shepherd and he lays his life down for the sheep. So the hunter, he, he came at just the right time to save the grandma and the little girl. And likewise, Jesus came at just the right time to save us, but at even more cost to himself. Hunter just walked in and cut the wolf open and called it a day. Jesus was devoured by the wolf in order to prevent that from happening to us. We see that it is by the protection of the good shepherd and him alone that we have any hope of being able to survive the ravenous wolves who seek to devour us. It's first by Christ's sacrifice that we're able to even be traveling on the narrow road in the first place, and it's then by Christ and his protection that we're able to be saved and preserved unto the end. First, it is by Christ, the true vine, who turns us from being diseased trees to being healthy trees that can bear good fruit. This whole sermon today, it has assumed that we here are sheep, that we are healthy trees. We can't assume that, though. This only applies if we are those people, and it is by Christ, the true vine, who makes us his branches and gives us life who's able to turn us from those like coffee mug terrariums into being clean mugs that you would actually drink from. He's our only hope of producing any true good and godly fruit. We can't, we can't trust in the outside of the cup in order to be cleansed. Don't, don't trust in how much you're reading your Bible, how much you're giving to the church, how often you show up to church, how generous you are, any of those things. Do not trust those as evidence that you're saved. Trust Christ as evidence that you're saved and then know that, that those godly fruits will then also be evidence on top of that. That'll be the faith plus the works. We trust in the one who can truly make the fruit pure and good, not worthless. And then once we are those healthy and good trees, once we're sheep in God's sheep pen, then the instruction from the passage is clear. It's just one word. He says it at the beginning. Beware. We beware. Now, at the beginning, um, and I'm sure you've been waiting on this, I, I mentioned that you guys love to do exactly what I have the same tendency to do. You love to hang around bears. You have the same problem. Here's what I mean by that. If we ended the sermon right now, that'd be okay. You would know who false teachers are, 
You'd know how to identify them. You'd, you'd have instruction to beware them. But that all, that all assumes that you want to beware them. Here's the thing. I've seen a food pyramid before. I know what I'm supposed to do to eat healthy. I know how I'm supposed to, to work out and exercise a certain amount per week and, and doing certain things. I know how much sleep I'm supposed to get and on and on with any of those kinds of examples. But does having the knowledge of the thing and knowledge of the consequences of not doing the thing, does that mean that you'll do it? No. We also have to have an actual desire to beware. We have to intend to do it. We have to make a plan for it. And then we actually have to have a way that we can beware. The problem for us is that because of the flesh and the, the sin that clings to us so closely as we seek to follow Jesus on the narrow road, the problem is that we tend to still love the things that are going to devour us. We tend to gravitate towards the things that plan to eat us alive. It's because the, the narrow road is hard. We've been talking about it for two weeks. Following Jesus is not a walk in the park. And so while we're Following Jesus, what can happen is sometimes because of our sin and our flesh, we're tempted to look over to the wide road and say, man, that looks good. And we look over and it, it appears to be like a walk through Willy Wonka's chocolate factory where you can have anything you want right next to you. And then we look back to the narrow path that we're on and we look ahead and we're like, man, that, that kind of looks like hiking up Mount Everest barefoot. And so we see that, we look at that, and then we look back and go, man, I, I, that wide road sounds good. And it's not that we say, oh, I, I don't want to follow Jesus. Oh, I want to be cast off into hell. I, I don't want to experience human flourishing and the fullness of life. It's not that. It's, man, this is really hard. Just one step over this way wouldn't be so bad, would it? Just one little step to make it easier. That wouldn't be so harmful. And this is the same issue of me with the bears and Little Red Riding Hood with the wolf. It's a perception issue. Right? When I look at a bear and I say, man, that thing looks so cute and cuddly, does that mean that it is? When Little Red Riding Hood first saw the wolf and was talking to it, and it says that she didn't know how dangerous it was, does that mean that it wasn't dangerous? Our perception was off. We have to keep in mind how dangerous wolves are. We have to keep in mind the road that they're trying to pull us onto and what is actually ahead. Scripture says that no matter how much the wide road might look just full of life and be so enticing, Jesus says that it will lead to death. It is just death and decay at the end of that road. There is no flourishing of the human life there. But he says, you look at what looks like climbing up Mount Everest barefoot sometimes, and he says, that is the road to life. That is the road of joy, and I'm going to be honest, I'm going to trust the shepherd who is devoured by wolves in order to get me onto that narrow path. I'm going to trust him a lot more than I'm going to trust the wolves who have no desire to do anything for me. They're just hungry. Why would I trust them and, and what they say and what they portray about the world more than Christ the shepherd. 
We have to look to Jesus. Hebrews talks about him being the the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We look to him in order to reorder our desires. We earnestly ask him, God, would you give me the right desires? Would you help me to want to beware the things that would kill me? Because I'm so tempted to want to hang around fire and think I'm not going to get burned. God, help me to see things with your eyes. Fix my perceptions. And as we do that, we will stay on the narrow road. We will beware and we will look to Jesus with the utmost joy. Knowing that even if the road is hard, it is the road that Christ has traveled and that Christ is on with us. And I would rather be walking through the the deepest and darkest valley of death with Jesus than walking through the easiest path path in the world without him. Joy is on the hard path because that is where God is. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You have made a way for us to be alive, for us to actually come into your sheep pen. We didn't deserve it. We deserve to be devoured. But you have made a way for us to be alive, for us to be on the narrow path to everlasting life. God, I pray that we would beware those false teachers, false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing who would appear to be on the road with us but not be. The people who would seek to devour us and and carry us off into a wide road kind of life. God, give us a desire to beware. You've given us all that we need here in this passage. You show us what we need to do, but God, I confess and we confess that we tend to not want to do it. We see the warning and we walk right past it. God, I pray that you would give us a true clarity of the viciousness of the wolves. That you would show us more and more of your character, how you are the good shepherd, and I pray that we would trust in you and you alone. That we would trust in your words, in your scripture. We would compare everything against you, Lord. Does Does what people say, does it line up with your words? Does it line up with your character? I pray that you would protect the flock. And we thank you that you have given us so many elders here at West Park, here at our church, in our community, who you have tasked as being little s shepherds who do your work of helping protect us. We thank you for them and pray for them And we pray that as we look to you and look to the path ahead, that that we would have a sober awareness of how hard it will be dying to self, that we would take that seriously, but it will also recognize that it is the most joyful thing that we could do with our lives, and it is the only road to life. We love you and we praise you, and it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.